That Normandy FM will start season three. That's right. We are jumping into Mass Effect three this week, and Ken, the only Ken, game that matters. I'm I'm so excited. I'm not I'm not gonna lie. I feel like this is the game that we made this podcast for. That's because correct. Mass Effect one. I feel like it was a known quantity going in. Okay, Mass Effect one. We were like, okay, we everybody. Got their takes out of the way on Mass Effect 1 a long time ago. It was not a take-worthy game, really. It was, you know, it existed, it started the trilogy, good. Mm. Mass Effect 2, known, again, known quantity. You know, we got to talk a little bit more in depth. We got to kind of look at it in retrospective, get some new ideas in there. You know, kind of look at this stuff through a critical lens, see how it's aged, see how it's different. But still... You know, we we came out of it. I I came out of it being like, yes, I still love Mass Effect Two. I feel like you came out of it still feeling the way you've always felt about Mass Effect Two. Mm. For the most part, it's a known quantity. Right. Mass Effect Three. This is the big one, baby. This is the one is. where I'm suddenly going. Am I changing the way about how I've always felt about Mass Effect Three? Mm-hmm. Can Ken possibly love Mass Effect Three more than he already does? Can, can this show can this show deliver spicier takes than the ones you've already heard the answer to all the questions I've just listed and more is yes yes a thousand times yes folks I'm glad you're here with us this is Norm DFM I'm Eric Van Allen joined by Kenneth Shepard oh boy it's a big week Ken it is you can't tell the energy is radiating I'm just I'm I'm thrilled. I'm excited. I'm ready to jump into this. We're we're on Earth. Let's set the stage. We are on Earth. We are in, as we have learned by later searching Google, Vancouver. Because <laughs> when we need to jail people on Earth, we send them to Vancouver. That's that's apparently Earth jail slash military headquarters, as we have now learned. <laughs> um and and things things have gotten interesting. Now Ken, you already, let's say, um, chided me for this one, but I played the intro to Mass Effect 3 without having played Arrival on my previous save in Mass Effect 2. And apparently there's some dialogue going into Mm. this that maybe helps contextualize what is otherwise a very um, in-media res starting. A very, like, Mass Effect 3 pretty much kicks off after about two minutes of of expository dialogue so for me all i got was shepherd hanging out talking to anderson there's some beefy dude who is apparently my new best friend that's just hanging about uh we run into our old human squad mate for me it was ashley so i was just like 
high, I guess. It was kind of like seeing a classmate at a 10-year high school reunion, and they've gotten slightly less racist <laughs> um, and, and straightened their hair as well. And, yeah, which uh, is you know, not necessarily combat-worthy, but, you know. Yeah, more on that as we go along. But mm. uh, And then we kind of get into a situation where the Reapers are descending. I'm interested to hear from you about how the Arrival stuff ties in, because that's very interesting to me. I want to hear what your thoughts are on the Arrival tie-in, and whether that gives you a little bit more than what I got, which kind of felt like a shove into the old deep end. Well, I would say that the main thing that makes it different is there's, like, specificity to the actual dialogue, because if you do it without playing Arrival, Anson's just like, oh, the shit you've done, paper, everyone should be wary of you. Main, like, it kind of is, like, left up into to interpretation. Like, you can maybe interpret that as, like, about Cerberus, or you can interpret that about just, like, not, you know, like, turning your back on the Alliance, or whatever, whatever you would like to call it. But it gets, like, it's weird watching them both scenes side by side, because there's, like, animations happening in that scene, if you haven't played Arrival, that are, like, meant to fit the dialogue in the event that you played Arrival. Um, because, like, there are points where, like, Shepard is getting, like, like, he's, like his, his mouth isn't moving, but, like, he is moving as if he is speaking. And it, like, if you're, if you played Arrival, you get actual dialogue about how, like, you're here because of what you did to the Batarian system in Arrival, and that's why, that's why you've been, you know, like, you've been stripped of your rank. You're, like, I, I don't even know, like, if you're technically considered part of the Alliance. I don't really know, what, like, the specifics of how that works goes, but it basically makes the uh, your the reason for you and the Normandy being grounded more specific and feels, you know, less sort of general, which I prefer. Yeah, I, um, my feelings on this intro, now granted, again, I've not played Arrival, so I've not experienced the intro that Ken just described, but my feeling has always been that it's very rushed and it feels very hurried like they just kind of want to get you into it right away because it's basically the developers going like okay we know what you want to do here we know like what's going to happen we know what the main object of this game is going to be let's not beat around the bush let's get into it and i always kind of respected it for that because yeah a lot of games i mean a lot of games a lot of movies a lot of books like to really beat around the bush before they get to the part that's important and the thing right. that you are coming to it for. And so I I like that about Mass Effect 3. That's just like maybe a couple minutes of cutscenes and then here come the Reapers. They showed up. They're here. They are destroying everything. But before... To, well, to me, we uh, just to jump off that before we get back to uh-huh. the sort of recap, what it, it sticks out to me as sort of something kind of comparable to like episodic games and stuff like Life is Strange Telltale stuff and that it doesn't take its time to like reestablish everything and it kind of solidifies Mass Effect the trilogy as sort of this ongoing thing and there are points later where like you don't even get proper introductions to characters like Joker and Edie and because like it sort of like assumes that you've are like that you've lived in this world long enough that you don't need those moments again and that's something kind of bold and especially in something as that was as big as this was at the time, like this huge AAA shooter RPG that was, you know, had EA's entire backing behind it, to sort of, like, be very unapologetic and that it was this continuation of something that had been ongoing. And, that's, again, that's not something we'd see a lot in games, that we see it maybe more in TV shows or um, books to an extent. 
Um, so yeah, like I, again, like it speaks to the Mass Effect being like a triple A episodic game to me. Yeah, I would say that the maybe the one place that that sort of thing happens nowadays is in the MCU, and I have a feeling yeah. as we go through Mass Effect Three, we're going to be thinking a lot about the MCU just because this all happened to line up rather nicely that one major entertainment uh i I don't know what you want to call it conglomerate universe uh behemoth is ending it's i guess you'd call it its first major arc when you think about it because really Mm -hmm. everything up till this point has been building to the end of the infinity war stuff and now it's kind of nebulous as to what marvel will be aiming for next if they even aim for stuff as big as infinity war in the future or if they try to maybe do smaller arcs instead which would be possibly more advisable but <laughs> uh, be with, okay with mass effect 3 it was the same thing it's this big culmination of all this stuff not just the games but the novels and the comics and the side stories mm. like there was a lot of extra stuff that was happening on the sides as well that was playing into this that we will be talking about as we go into uh later in this episode but the first thing I wanted to bring up is that while for my playthrough we have the return of uh, of one character, and I find this is going to be a good point as any to give our Patreon shoutouts for the week uh, to two patrons we have this week who are donating at the tier that includes a shout-out. Thank you to so much for donating. As always, if y'all listening want to tune in, you can uh, head over to... What, you're already tuned in if you all want to help uh keep the lights on around here keep us going uh head on over to patreon.com slash norm and you can be like rain and space racist ashley williams and donate to the cause and and help us keep this uh this podcast going keep the lights on and maybe get us towards some of those higher level tiers where we can start doing some more bioware games but i brought that up because not only do we have two excellent patrons who are keeping this thing going, who are doing so much, thank you all, but uh, we also see the return of notorious space racist Ashley Williams <laughs> in my playthrough. Uh, mm. She's very, very dead in Ken's playthrough. Yep. Um, she is, as the MCU would call it, uh, cannot be brought back. She is snapped for good. Um, she, she just gone. So, uh, yep. but in mine she is uh still around because i do it for the podcast y'all i do it for the <laughs> podcast i i was actually you know the long the long refrain has always been that ashley gets better over time and as we go through this i am making it my personal mission to interrogate and examine that reasoning to see truly if ashley does get better over time if ashley does become a better companion a more empathetic person and maybe try to to do right by the many places in which she had done wrong previously she could be more learned she could have seen more of the world rejected some of her old beliefs or she could just be good old space racist (laughs) but either way that's reliable that's my personal mission but ken I know you're excited because your playthrough at this part of the story means you get to see the return of one very, very special boy. And I think you... So, the important thing here, the the important thing we learn here is that 
or one of the many important things we learn here is that Caden's gotten promoted. He's a major now. He technically outranks Shepard. And, you know, in the event that I had Damn. to, I would be glad to serve under him. Damn, but, Caden and Tot now is, is yeah. what you're saying. Good job, Caden. I always knew you had it in you. <laughs> Good job. So, and like you said, with Ashley, my sort of my my mission of you know the next season is to make my case as to why I think Kadenlenko is actually the best romance option in all of Mass Effect, and why he's the best, most nuanced, and just all around most enticing human companion in the series. That is my goal because it's true, and I've been waiting. I've been waiting three seasons for this. This this is my moment. I do like that you qualified it at the end there. The the best human companion. I'm I'm glad that that we at least came to some understanding. <laughs> I mean, a lot can ha- a lot can happen in uh-huh, uh-huh. however many episodes we got of this. So. We will see. We will see. Uh, yeah. So we finally we meet up with our with our old our old friends. You know, we we kind of. I will say that the scene for. Let's call it a loveless uh, attraction because I wrote in mind that the Ashley intro is awkward if you're same gender, but that obviously would not apply with Caden, who is now an interest or a love interest potential for for same gender, but Ashley never is. Um, but yeah, the the conversation between uh, Shepard and Ashley is very. It is totally like high school you know 10 years later oh yeah we used to like hang out at some point but we never mm. really like hung out it's always yeah. in groups we were in the same group but never like hung out together it was it was yeah. that kind of weird and uh i i was trying to figure out whether it was done purposefully or whether it was just because for every other interaction there was a potential like romance that could still be in play but with Ashley and a female ship, that wasn't going to happen. So they just took out any level of familiarity or intimacy they could have implicated in the interaction. And I think that's maybe more of the case. Mm. That That is possible. Because, like, there are, like, kind of throughout Mass Effect in general, it's like you either have the romance option of a conversation or you have, like, what feels like this very rushed, weird version of it that feels like it's been cut off immediately. Um, but what what is interesting to me about because like technically at this point my romance has not been initiated with Caden so like and we talked about this a little bit in Horizon where it's like these two characters kind of occupy the same role but the way that their conversations sort of play out feels slightly different just because of like the, the person that you're talking to and that has always been an interesting thing to me because even though the romance isn't technically you know ongoing at this point the conversation with Caden it, it feels very like that there's already like not sexual tension but just like romantic tension there because like it Caden's like happy to see you but he also feels like very sad that like he doesn't speak to you on the same level that he used to um mm. so like even when there's not necessarily you know a, a romantic past there still has that familiarity to it that sounds like it's absent from Ashley's yeah yeah with Ashley's it's kind of like Again, it just it it sincerely feels that that level of like petty. I, I I don't know other ways to describe it. To where like 
you have that feeling where you've walked away from a person that they're probably going to say something about you behind your back and like vice versa and that is just the accepted norm between you two like it was it was strangely cold in a way i was not expecting and maybe if i played it again today i would feel different but i probably wouldn't because ultimately i will tell you right now like i have played through most of mass effect 3 already um in preparation for this season and i'll already tell you that my mission is not let's say it's not doing much to change hearts and minds (laughs) uh well, we but, got plenty more conversations to have with both of these characters just in this episode to talk about. But so. we do have plenty of hearts and minds to change to ashes as the Reapers invade. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so we get trotted out in front of the human council to get shouted at again because apparently that's what Shepard's thing is. You know, people in, in charge love to shout at Shepard, especially when... They're going like, oh, we lost contact with a bunch of bases and stuff. Why can't we talk to them? Let's get Shepard in here so we can yell at her a bunch. <laughs> uh, then all the, during that time, we do find out that they have done very little to actually prepare for the Reaper invasion besides mm. bringing the, uh, the fleet in to protect Earth, uh, which we soon find out was not What's enough. What's for nothing? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then the reapers just invade and there's this great this great shot of this i think it's the the elder woman counselor who's just like what do we do then yeah (laughs) there's nothing we can do she's like all is lost and it's i don't know why it's like they were just like we need one counselor who is the panicked all is lost person and she was designated that person (laughs) and whoever was on mocap for that really just hammed it up in a way that i really enjoy right before (laughs) uh the windows get blown off the place and presumably a large portion of the people who were just in that room died uh but not not Shepard or Anderson because they're too awesome to be killed by such a measly thing. As and, like as uh, a Reaper beam. Yeah, yeah, Reaper Reaper beam. Come on. You know what we've survived so far in this game? Bullshit mechanics, bad cover, uh <laughs> broken abilities, let's say. Heteronormative uh, ideals. Exactly. We've survived it all and come out on top literally in some cases <laughs> it's uh hey. yeah so then we get to basically pick up the gun and run out with anderson and go uh get get to the business of this game which is killing a lot of reapers and uh immediately this is the let's let's just talk about the gameplay to start because all right the jump from Mass Effect 1 to Mass Effect 2 was massive, right? It was this right. complete overhaul of pretty much everything in that game. Uh, the, the closest thing you had to it being similar was that there were some of the same ideas going on, like the the biotics wheel and the, the cover. But even then, cover was much more important, and it was also a very uh, malleable state. You could vault things and things like that, and, and cover also just offered a lot more strategy uh it felt like enemies used it more often than they did in mass effect one uh mass effect three i have gone so back and forth on this because i think overall combat is best in mass effect three in the series Mm -hmm. however they did my vanguard dirty 
because Vanguard you... just does not feel the same in Mass Effect 3 compared to Mass Effect 2. I feel like it lost some of the oomph, and a large portion of that is that Shockwave is a husk of its former self. Yeah, that's a that was a uh, choice that somebody made. It feels it feels like a lot of the classes are more balanced in a way. Mm. Like they wanted to make it so that no matter what class you picked, it wouldn't really hamper the way you wanted to play the game. Because you yeah, can I kind mean... of spec into anything and if you import your save from Mass Effect 2, you carry over everything. I mean, which is still like this... a really cool thing to open up, yeah, like open it's, up it's the menu and so everything is still in the same place as you left it. Yeah, I mean, you have all the skill points, you have everything. I mean, like my Shepard was already maxing out most of her abilities and things like that. So that was really cool, and that also opens you up to in this game. I think they just take the limit off on how many abilities you can have so you can start adding on abilities and and really like just creating a character that is unreasonably powerful uh i know i added at least two other squad mate abilities over my time and maxed them out uh so that's really cool i don't know if that's is that a pc specific thing or is that that might be because i i only know that you can have one on i I know i've i know i've added at least one although it might have carried over the one that i would have had from mass effect 2 that was the added that might have been it because like i i did reeve in two and i did reeve again in three yeah see i think i carried over reeve and then i added another one. Oh, okay so mm-hmm. i don't okay. know you might be able to do that in the console version or it might just be because you have the number key slots to use for mm-hmm. biotics in uh on the pc version that they were just like whatever take the limit off if somebody really wants to have every ability just let them uh i don't know i might do some extracurricular research on that and and see if i can peg down the the finer details but overall combat feels smoother but in some places it still has a weird um kind of hitch to it that i've maybe noticed a bit more in mass effect 3 just because it looked and felt a lot more modern that I was still having moments where I was like, okay, no, I want to vault this cover. I don't want to just keep popping in and out of the cover and stuff like that. Uh, Moments, and also just like animations. I feel like enemies were popping up and down from cover in a way that made them look more like whack-a-moles than actual Mm -hmm. people like standing up and kneeling back down and all that. Whereas in 2, they had a little bit more of a flow to their motions, but here they like jerk up and then jerk back down really quick. Uh... I was just noticing little details like that, but overall, uh, the combat is really good, but the fact that they have to put you through the whole tutorial at the beginning, again, we talked about this already, but it definitely reminded me that this game came out on Wii U without Mass Effect 1 or 2 prior on that system, so there were totally people who played this on the Wii U who had never played Mass Effect before, and that blows my mind to this day. Yep. It's really you good. Can put one, you can put one of them on a Nintendo system, but you can't put them all on Switch. Come on, I EA. I know, right? Come on. One thing. We want one thing. It's not that... I don't know how to make video games, but it can't be that hard. Can't. It just can't. You just take <laughs> it that... and you put it in the Switch, alright? You just take you it... File, and save, it as, Switch. Switch. Exactly. You export as. I'm sure that Adobe Game Maker, which is probably <laughs> the thing that it's called already has that option come on 
the thing that really got to I, me though about I look forward um, to that being taken out of context in the future. <laughs> <laughs> the thing that stands out to me about Mass Effect 3's combat is that it's where they started to put more of an emphasis on um, like combos, meaning like biotic yes, tech combos, yes. which is like with Mass Effect 3, I'm finding my muscle, my muscle memory coming back in more because it is where like a lot of the strategies I used to have really stick out to me because like I would have Caden do Reeve, I would charge at it. And then, because they give you back, um, or no, they they finally give you dodge roll, I would let the explosion happen, and then dodge roll immediately away. And then, so like by then their shields are taken out, and then I can just shoot them like you know standard vanguard stuff. And then you also had Nova, so like I'm constantly like relying more on my biotics than I ever was. Not just charged, and not just shockwave, just more kind of all together. I'm operating like less with my shotgun than I used to. Which I mean, you know, that is that like it, like I said, just take some like the umph away of like the charge shotgun combo, but it did make me feel like I was moving constantly. Like it was more frenetic than Mass Effect Two ever was, and that's you know that's saying a lot because Mass Effect Two was a much more kinetic game, and mm-hmm. um, and as they also really and, like this is something that I don't feel like Mass Effect Three ever got you know the credit for it deserved. They really really stepped it up with enemy variety here because. Yes, Back in like Mass Effect Two, definitely. like it was like just various versions of the same sort of combat style, where everyone has had, you know, their assault rifle and what's popping out of cover, and what it was whether you had to use overload or warp to take down their shields. But here, like, we'll start with the Reapers because that's where we're at right now. Like, you've got the husks, which are the human, the human husks, and then the uh, the cannibals, which are like, Batarian, and so like husks to charge at you. Batarians have uh, the the cannibals have. Uh, like assault rifles, and later we'll like meet the marauders, which are shielded and have their own. Like it's yeah, they do a good job of introducing enemy variety and also tying it into the progression of the game as well in a way that feels supernatural and keeps the combat fresh for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, no, I definitely agree with that. And the other thing I'd say about combat in Mass Effect Three is that they did a good job of making. I did, like, just knock it for this, but I will also say that they did a good job of just making you able to make the shepherd that you want to make. Yeah. Because, and the biggest way that comes in is that you can choose your own loadout. And the only limiter is whether you want higher or lower power recharge time. And that's a really good way of handling that system because then you can just say, okay, you know, if you want all the weapons, that's cool, but it's going to take you forever to recharge your biotic abilities and vice versa you know if you want all the biotic recharge time you're only going to be able to bring in so many weapons before that's going to start to hamper you and so there's really interesting choices to be made there and they do some cool things with the equipment uh on the weapons that let you kind of min max that where you can go like okay i want to carry more weapons i'm going to put ultralight materials on them so i don't lose recharge but that takes up a Mm. slot that i could be using to give them more damage or things like that that system is very smart however the way it is organized and arranged is a goddamn nightmare and it's one of my least favorite parts of this game that is that weapon menu because it is just unwieldy and i always felt like i was accidentally undoing choices i just made or certain choices were not made super clear um I wish it told me, like, I know, look, I know that it says that putting a scope on a gun will put a scope on a gun, but they don't make it explicitly clear that 
it changes the way you look down sights for that gun to a scope. And considering when most of the game, especially previous ones, adding a scope or changing a scope just gave you like a mysterious boost in accuracy. When I put a scope on my pistol for the first time, and then all of a sudden I had an actual scope that I just zoomed into all of a sudden, that freaked me the fuck out. So, uh, I... I think if they ever do go back and revisit these games, that is, like, one major thing that they could do for quality of life that would make it way better is keep all the customization. I love all the customization that's happening in those screens, but just make it easier to customize. Don't make it this weird thing where you're, like, shifting left and right and then moving up and down between stuff. Like, that never feels good. And it does that weird Mass Effect thing that Mass Effect 2 did as well where to accept the changes you just have to back out of the screen there isn't like a button where you hit where you say like confirm this is what i want to do like confirm these changes you just back out and that feels really bad because then it feels like you're closing a document without saving it you know Mm. um i those are just the things i think about after i go through like so many repetitions of that process is that I just wish there was an easier way to flip through all this and and get to it better. And also, maybe I think the weapon bench is a little dated at this point, but that's just my other gripe. Um, overall, the combat in this game is stellar. And it really... Having all those weapon slots also gives you the opportunity to experiment more with other weapons. So by the end of the game, I wasn't carrying a shotgun anymore because I just found that none of the shotguns really did it for me in this mm. game. I was, uh, once I got it, I was carrying the, the, I think it's called the Venom shotgun. It's the one that's basically a grenade launcher. And it was literally mm. just my uh, large mob killer. Uh, for the most part, I, I was just using either my heavy pistol or my SMG. And so after a while, I was just like, okay, I'm not having fun with this shotgun. I'm literally only pulling it out for big enemies. So I'm already like, I can whittle them down anyways with the other two. I'm not... I have no real attachment to shotguns since I'm not really playing a charge vanguard anymore. I'm playing more of a biotic vanguard that uses charge still, but maybe doesn't do the charge shotgun combo like I used to. Uh, I play more of a tactical move around the arena and flank and stuff like that uh, rather than like a berserker. And so uh, I switched to using assault rifles and just the ability to do that, to just be like, hey, I'm going to use assault rifles now. That feels really good. Like, that's just a good time. And mm. uh, and I just really... Pre- also, it let me just mess with guns that I never used in previous playthroughs because yeah. I'd always, like, determined myself to be that, no, I'm going to use shotgun because I'm a Vanguard and I'm an idiot. But uh, getting to finally use, like, the Madoc, which is just a great gun, let me tell you. That is... Mm. Woo! They got it right with that one. Um... <laughs> yeah that one that one does all right but that's that's all way ahead because at this point we're really only using the heavy pistol and we're just mowing down some uh some reaper off spring i keep here okay where do these things come from how do you mean so when the reapers invade it's the reaper ships right Mm -hmm. where and, and whenever there are ostensibly enemies that arrive with them smaller enemies that would not Mm -hmm. be natural to the planet they're arriving on because they did not come from the planet they are arriving on these are enemies that would have had to be carried from another area 
So mm-hmm. do the Reapers just have them inside the ship all the time? But then we also see these so. weird meteors that are like masses of things that enemies seem to spawn up from. But are do they just go hurtling into the ground in a trash meteor and then rise from the ground from the trash meteor? Like I would assume so. I just because like so I mean the ones we're dealing with right now are humans and batarians. So I, and since we know from Arrival that's where they came from, like the they they came from the batarian system first. I would imagine that they just carry them inside the ship from I thought, wherever they're coming from. But I, th- I, I could be misremembering this, but I thought I remembered that Sovereign was like an anomaly in the fact that he could carry things inside him, that he could carry like a crew inside him. And even then, it wasn't really like he had a lot of people inside that ship. It was maybe like enough for a small squad, but he wasn't dropping like whole forces, whole armies so I don't remember if that was ever specifically designated. This might be another note I have to make to do some extracurricular research on. Because the thing I kept thinking about was that the Reaper forces are kind of like Sin Spawn. In that they just kind of show up when Sin is nearby. But you don't really get a lot more reason for why they're there. Except for every once in a while you get those little scale ones that pretty clearly just came out of Sin. But this this is a reference to Final Fantasy X for anyone listening. <laughs> uh, one of my favorite video games of all time. Uh, and so, yeah, I definitely in this game was thinking a lot about, like, where did these dudes come from? <laughs> like, what is a Reaper ship if not a Reaper? And also, do, like, if, if a Reaper had to transport these forces here, why isn't the Reaper still here? Did just, like, taxi them over here? Is is a Reaper, like, being dedicated to those tasks? And I don't know. I was thinking a lot about the hierarchy and logistics of the Reaper military forces, which is maybe putting a little bit more thought into this game than I was supposed to, but when you've played a game enough times, you start to notice the details. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I'm thinking about a bunch of Batarian and, and Reaper, like, husks being shoved into the back of a Reaper. <laughs> And also, how do they get in there? Like, do they? Is there like a ramp that they just run inside, or is they trying to like? I I just always assume that Reapers Reaper? work. Just... I just always assume that Reapers work like any other ship. Okay, but is there like a ramp, or is there a door, or, or why do they? Why would they have a door? That's a structural weakness. That's. I'm thinking a lot about this stuff because the end result I keep coming back to is one Reaper stuffing another Reaper with Reaper forces like a damn turkey. And that's the only thing. And I keep coming back to that. <laughs> wait, wait. <sighs> oh, I miss you, great-grandma. <laughs> Good Lord. Have I, have I told that story on this podcast yet? It's one of my favorite stories about family members. And since <laughs> I mean, that where family are you, member like... has now passed away, I, I get to tell it all the time now. When I was very young, my great-grandma, who was from Russia, she came over from the old country on a boat. And uh, she... Uh, we were we were at Thanksgiving, and she was she was putting together the the turkey and all that. It was just me and her in the kitchen. I was a little kid. I was so happy to help her out, and she was like, "Eric, you know what we gonna do with this turkey?" And I was like, "What? What? What, Baba? We're gonna stuff its ass." <laughs> and then she just <laughs> rammed a bunch of shit into the turkey, and I was like, "Oh my god." <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> and that's when Eric learned what baby, where babies come from. Uh-huh. I was like four at the time. I did not fully understand. I just knew it was funny. <laughs> and my, my, I think it was my mom was in the other room. She was howling. She just thought it was hilarious. Uh, Good Lord. <laughs> yeah, my family. Uh, really getting personal here on Normandy FM. That's what the viewers <laughs> want. It's the listeners want. We're not viewers yet. We don't have that kind of technology. Still working on that. Um, so we we go through this whole section of Earth where we're kind of being tutorialized, taught how to play all this stuff, and we get to one of the let's call it the leap motifs, the the recurring theme of Mass Effect Three, which is a little kid, and this we see him hanging out in the tunnels or in the air ducts as we're trying to get through this this house to where all the the other allied forces are congregating and uh no matter what you pick here uh the kid is basically just distrustful of you being able to save him uh i think if you do the paragon version he's he's like i don't you can't save me nobody can can save us from this and and he like that's what happened in mine i think if you do renegade he he's just scared of you or something i don't know if he, uh, I he think gives it, you the same guilt trip i think it's like the same thing you can't help me is what he says yeah so he he guilt trips you you look away for half a second you turn back and he's gone uh as we'll we'll, we'll continue this in a moment so first we gotta get to the the alliance marines uh, take out some more Reaper forces to get on the radio and bring in the Normandy, which has been callously undocked, ungrounded, and we got to get on there and get the hell off Earth because it's pretty clear by this point there are Reapers everywhere. There's Reaper forces everywhere. Buildings are falling. People are dying. And Anderson basically tells us, you got to get on that ship and go tell everyone what's happening and start rallying the universe because the Reapers are here. It's no more theoretical, like, this is happening, we need to work together now, and you're the only one who can make that happen. Uh, and basically reinstates you unofficially, but officially, because we all know that Anderson's the, the guy in charge. We all know it. Um, and as we're taking off, we see the uh, we see the kid get on the ship, and uh, the ship starts taking off, and gets shot out of the air. And the kid dies or it's heavily implied that the kid is dead but maybe kid survives giant reaper laser blast who knows but pretty pretty much safe to assume the kid's dead and i I wanted to start talking about this early because this is going to be something that keeps coming up it's literally like the game keeps using it as a thing to tie back and i'm just gonna go ahead and say it now ken Mm -hmm. little ham-fisted a little bit, you think? Uh, yeah, it's it's, and well, uh, so are we going to get to the point where you have the first vision, or is that not until after Paladin? I, I know it's it's it the first dream, you mean? Like, yeah, the first dream. Is it after this, or is it after Paladin? It's um, bef- it's uh, once you get back on the Normandy. So like we will, okay, I guess. So we will next week get back to this. Okay. No, well, you know, but let's just can... end this episode on it. Yeah, but I will say early on that um, it gets a little old pretty quick. And uh, so, well, okay. I have complicated thoughts on it as well. I don't. The ham fisted part doesn't necessarily bother me as much because like, I feel like this is. Mass Effect 3 
with the exception of maybe like Danganronpa and The Last of Us, I feel like it understands the gravity of death more, like better than most video games do, because it is like in every mission you're getting like an incredibly memorable death and like a like a you know of all these characters that we've known for years at this point. So it's like the thing that sticks out to me with a kid is that he's like an equalizer for anyone who's coming into this game at any point. It's like if, if you played it from one, two, or three, like you have this sort of poster child of like these characters that like you can't save these characters that you can't like you can't game the system and get around like like the suicide mission like I talked about on that mes- on that on that episode where like you don't have this sort of like way to like there's no choice that you can make that's gonna save these people and like that's sort of like the the thread throughout the whole game and the my issue with the kid comes from less of him as a concept is more just like because he's an equalizer it feels like certain characters that could maybe better occupy that space kind of get the shaft because yeah. like let's say like you're, you're putting the place since Mass Effect 1 like Caden and Ashley one of them mm. could be gone like um, and then the Mass Effect and Mass Effect 2 you could have lost any one of those 12 people on the suicide mission and like they, they get their callbacks they get sort of like the moments where, like, you have that chance to sort of grieve them, but they have to have this universal thing that they can put in front of everybody to sell that idea that Shepard is dealing with survival skills. That, and feeling the weight of what they're doing, like, more more pronounced than they ever have in the series. Because, you know, Mass Effect 2, you know, you're going towards a suicide mission, but a lot of the weight of that is not necessarily on Shepard, it's on the squad. So, like, they have to have this sort of, like, really humanizing art for Shepard that I think, in the grand scheme of things, works, but I can understand why the kid being the face of it could get on some people's nerves. Yeah, I, so you got directly to where I was going with this, um, with this line of questioning, which was, my ultimate feelings on it are that this kid, while the loss of that kid is symbolic to Shepard's ultimate failings in stopping the reapers which was kind of shepherd's goal up to this point and so this is like the most clear representation of the thing that shepherd has failed to do there are also so many characters that even get brought up in this game as people who have fallen because of the actions that shepherd has taken um and, and you rightfully point out the human squad mate and in this game they made the explicit choice to have that like the surviving squad may be there and they also point out like there are multiple times when they they're like oh you can't save everyone remember Caden or remember Ashley and they go out of their way to be like hey yeah that person died because you had to make a choice and somebody was going to die and sometimes you have to do that and they had them there they had them in the voice booth so I'm I'm wondering why they didn't have them in in these sequences instead and focus more on that aspect because having the kid feels like it's it's just this painfully obvious hey this is how we're gonna make you feel guilty about things like they were really showing their cards with with that one in a way that lessened the impact of it even like i remember when i was first playing it and much more so now that i've played through it a few times that i know like what this kid kind of ultimately what the culmination of this thread eventually is 
and it just does not do anything for me and it's it's maybe one of i i don't want to be hyperbolic but like it does feel like one of the larger failings of the story is just relying so heavily on this metaphor of like, hey, remember, Shepard has lost, all right? And especially doing it right after a mission where you could have potentially just lost a squad mate or something like that or a longtime friend or, or a big character and then being like, hey, yeah, but remember that kid? Yeah, that kid you had one wheel of dialogue with. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in fairness, like, in these dream sequences, you do get voice... Like, there are, like, voiceovers yes, playing yeah, that's, that's in, of, the, like... Those come in that... That's what I was referring to, is that in, in some of these dream sequences, there will be, like, clips that play where they're like, oh, you couldn't save him, or you gotta leave me, Captain, and all that kind of stuff. You gotta leave yeah. me, Commander, and all that. They definitely do make use of it in that way, but it just... The whole time, it's still very much centered on this kid. And... I just, I wish it had either gone for something that was a little bit more interesting, like, like maybe they had, I don't, I don't know, expanded on it. I also find it weird that Shepard has these dreams, but as far as I can tell, having now played this game almost through about three times, um, working on my third time, because I think I've played it through at least twice before now. I mean, for once for sure. Second time is I'm unsure whether I finished it the second time or not. And the third time uh, is what I'm working on right now. Does Shepard ever talk to somebody about these dreams or mention them? Or I, outside of just being yeah. like, I had a weird dream. Oh, that's weird. Like, does do they ever, like, sit down and try to be like, hey, should we figure out what this means? I keep having this recurring dream. Well, seeing as I'm a person who gets visions of things that are catastrophic to the human race and the universe... Should maybe examine it a little bit further. Not necessarily in that large of a scale, but yeah, there are conversations that I know I can point out with uh, Liara, Garrus, and I mean, ultimately, like, your love interest, you know, before yeah. the final battle, you have conversations about it, but some of them are optional. Like, you... Because, like, people oh, ask, like, what's yeah. wrong? And then you're, they're like, what's wrong? And you have the option to be like, oh, it's nothing, I'm fine. Or you can actually be like, hey, no, I'm kind of fucked up about this thing. Um... Maybe I missed them then. And that will be another thing that I we will be talking about is that there's you can you can miss a lot of stuff in this game, Ken. The game's got a lot of stuff that is happening, so like it is easy to miss big it's, big moments. Let's say it's maybe a little too easy in a way that is extremely frustrating, especially when it's a scene involving your love interest and you get too oh, many yeah, emails. Oh yeah, I just I just saw that one. I just the well that yeah. Yeah. Which we will get to. Yeah. Eventually. Um Yeah. Anyways, so we're we're done with Earth. We're we're leaving Earth. This is the last time we're gonna see Earth. It is the first time and the last time for a very long time. We won't be coming back to Earth until the end of this game. Anderson, you got it. You're gonna hold it down. We trust in you. If there's anybody who can solo hold down the planet. It's this big guy right here. We gotta go do other stuff. We gotta jet around space because it's what we're good at. But first, we gotta go to Mars because, uh, at least for me, that's where Wifey is. You know, we gotta go pick her up because uh, things are bad. And I heard, I read somewhere once that Mars is close to Earth, so be probably be a good idea to check up on that. But also, I mean, if you need more reason beyond just the best, the best blue girl is in danger. Uh, 
she might also have some info on a way to potentially stop the Reapers, which is a big dun-dun-dun moment with Hackett. Real convenient. Yeah, yeah. Um, I promise myself I'm not going to use the term deus ex machina because it does not fit okay. in this situation. That is, it does not no. fit. No, I, it is not. It is a word that I think it's overused, perhaps. Kind of it's like thrown around by people that don't know what it means. Yeah, kind of like the way people use the word literally. when it, They're not actually talking about literally. And but, Mary Sue. Yeah, hey. Why would you bring that one up, Ken? <laughs> I don't know, it just came to me. <laughs> Almost like you leapt at you and then dropped the idea before it grabbed it again with another hand and did the thing it had been building up to for eight seasons. Funny yeah. about that. Oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> ah, sipping tea over here. Um, no. We no, do gotta talk about real it's, quick it's before not, we head on to yeah, Mars. Yeah. We gotta talk about one James Vega who is stowed away on our ship. Motherfucker, okay? <laughs> I like, explicitly we'll have... said I was not going to talk about James Vega this episode because I was well, we saving talk about all my rage. Bit. Okay, but we will save the rage for next week oh, when boy. we are actually like properly back in the Normandy. If but, I like, can right bottle off the it bat, for that long, <laughs> right off the bat, homeboy's crawling at my ass, like because he doesn't want to leave Earth, and you know that's fine. Like if he, he like at this point he's they're sort of establishing Good. him as a sort of like Bye. <laughs> hope you can swim sort of through a... space. <laughs> They're sort of establishing him as, like, this homebody that's, like, really attached to Earth. He wants to be there, like, ready to fight and die for his planet. And that's, you know, that's all well and good. But we are, like, on the way to, like, trying to, like, stop this whole thing. And you get this really nice renegade option to just be like, like, shut the fuck up. Mm-hmm. You, can, you can get off the ship when we get to the Citadel, and then you can fly on your way. But right now, you're stuck here. You're with us. Eyes forward. It's good. Like it's one of like, I it's a it's a weird place to bring it up, but it's also one of my favorite. The points where like I feel like Mark Muir really got a hold of this role in a way that he like. I mean, he's been good to not so great in the first two games, but like I feel like Mass Effect Three is kind of the point where I I felt like the sort of lopsided uh, quality of male Shepard versus female Shepard voice acting really starts to uh, balance itself. Because I would, like this was also one of the points where like I like saw the early moments of female Shepard playthrough and like I was not a fan of the way that she delivered on this line and it was like I felt like she was overacting in certain places where I felt like male Shepard was very like you know leveled and where he needed to be. Um, so yeah, I just want to give a sh- like a shout out at this point to Mark Mir because I really think this was the point where he really sold the role of Shepard. Yeah, and I will say that. I enjoy bold voice actor. I think we both do enjoy bold actors uh, mm-hmm. in these roles. They both take their own approach to it in a way that really makes Shepard feel like their own character um, within within the genders and doesn't just feel like it was two actors. Like, like right. It doesn't feel like one was taking the lead and the other one was just trying to imitate the other. They really develop their own voice and their own way of portraying Shepard. And I think that's yeah. like I think that's something that doesn't get talked about enough because you don't have that option very often in video games. But it I know this is like way of a reach and pretentious to say, but it makes me think of the way that like different actors can put their mark on like Shakespearean characters and stuff like that. Like that, like you yeah. have somebody who does their version of Hamlet, and it's different from the way somebody else does Hamlet. And it's the same lines, but you're just adding something to it and i feel like mass effect 3 is where we get to see that that these two actors 
really deliver their own versions of Shepard mm. that feel for fully sure. unique from for each sure. other. And I, yeah, so major props out to Mark Muir and Jennifer Hale for just really killing it in that department through all three games. Um, yeah, especially playing through this time, the first time as, as female Shepard, I always heard about how Hale was very good, but I was always kind of like, oh, well, you know, male Shep is how I've always played this game, so I'm just going to keep yeah. doing that. And hearing her, it's just been like, playing with a new protagonist it's really cool um yeah really enjoy it uh so anyways back to what we were talking about we got to go pick up liara because she has the not deus ex machina um the the thing the secret project that hackett has been working on to kill the reapers uh and we we get to mars they finally give you your real loadout so you get your guns and you've got Vega backing you up because they they kind of come up with a weird reason early on for, um, for for people to ha- well no it's not just Vega no you can you can tag along with your your other human companion on this one so mm-hmm. right you have to leave one person behind because that's not the yet. slot no, not yet well I mean eventually but, yeah the, eventually Vega has to leave yeah yeah. Okay, good. I'm tr- I was trying to remember, because I was like, okay, there's like a weird part where it's just you and Vega, and then it's all three of you, but then you have to like leave somebody behind or something like that, uh, so that way it's it's like the gameplay reason of being like, hey, yeah, here you go, you know, this is how we split up and, and make room for Liara to come in. Anyways, so we're going into Mars, and guess who's the one that's attacking Mars? It's not the Reapers, it's... Cerberus, and yikes! This, this starts. We just gave them a base. <laughs> yeah, well, and also, this starts one of the maybe most frustrating plot points of the entire game for me, which is turns out Cerberus was always bad, and they're actively acting against you, the person who's trying to save the entire damn universe from the Reapers. Uh, it. <laughs> Ken, mm. I'm just going to early on say this. I'm just going to early on plant this seed. As we go throughout the season, please be thinking about this. Okay. Where does Cerberus get all these damn people from? Well, there's there's this whole thing about how they got all these resources, and I'm sure that in the very short time that humans have been in the universe or in the galaxy compared to the other races, they've still managed to spread out and claim a lot of wealth for some indiscernible reason but there's we kill a lot of cerberus troopers and i know some of them i know some of them are mechs i know i know i know some of them are just robots and those you can make but there's also just a lot of dudes that we kill and while we get a little bit of insight into what's going on with those dudes and and that maybe not all the the cerberus stuff going on here is voluntary uh there's also just a level of you know i figured that most of the human forces would be on earth or centered in some other place or and cerberus just seems to have a force that rivals that of the reapers and the combined might of the citadel forces and nobody has really batted an eye for a long time about it and yeah it, it it's kind of weird seeing cerberus through the series get bumped from okay they're a splinter faction 
of the Alliance military that's kind of been doing this stuff off in secret to, okay, well, they have the elusive man. It turns out they've got a lot of resources, and they're actually maybe a little bit more prominent than you knew, but they're still kind of, like, working under the surface. You know, like, they're that thing that everybody knows about, but it's not like they're flying flags and waving banners and stuff like that, too. Holy crap, Cerberus owns a lot. Like, they literally own sections of the galaxy at this point. Yeah. And this so, this is not the two-year okay. gap that we had between Mass Effect 1 and Mass Effect 2. This is a six-month gap. So the only real explanation I can get from my vast wealth of knowledge about Mass Effect lore is, did you ever get around to, before you played Arrival, going to talk to E like, after she's been unshackled? No. Yeah, actually, I still have not done that. Did she give you a little bit more info she, about, like, the, she, the breadth of Cerberus... Yeah, she kind of, like, talks about just Cerberus is more ingrained in humanity than you might realize at that point. Like, there's not, like, specific numbers of, like, Hail troops Hydra and people. situation, is it? Yeah, it's kind of... The, huh. Kind of, like, that they've got people kind of everywhere. And, you know, the, the Normandy crew is, can only see so much of this. And so, I mean, like, it doesn't... Like, no specific numbers are given about, like, how many sort of associates they have. But, like, to me, that was kind of the, the explanation on that front, just of, like, why, why, where they have all these resources and all these people. Um, so that's the only explanation I've got. It does seem kind of excessive, but this is also a video game, so video game things are yeah, going to happen. Yeah, yeah. And that's, you know, that's all I'm well just, and fine. That's but... just also, like, yeah, we'll, we'll get into why that really bothers me once we get into some of the side missions and, and stuff, but, um, yeah, here... Cerberus is bad, and they're they're like killing people and stuff. That's uh, you know, it's pretty bad. So <laughs> gotta stop it. We gotta get inside, and and here is kind of where we we start to develop what the main conflict between uh, our new human companion. Well, not really our new human companion, our old human companion, but newer than what's his face, good old Vega boy. Uh, <laughs> Or Caden and Ashley have an issue with us because they're like, hey, you used to be Cerberus, and this is what Cerberus is doing. What do you think about that? Like, are you involved with this? Should we be able to trust you? And I'm interested to hear what you have to say because for me, Ashley was extremely hostile. Funny, mm. you wouldn't assume that. But, uh, <laughs> Her Ashley, personality never. Ashley was massively distrustful in a way that I was like, okay, maybe you should stay up above. And the only reason I didn't was that somehow in the choice between the two, Ashley was the better. So slim margins went out today. But uh, Ken, I want to hear about, I'm more interested in your stuff because this is not only for you a conflict between uh, a former crewmate and Shepard, but also part of a, a budding, hopefully to bloom romance. I want to get some of that attention. Let me hear about it. So, it's not. There's not a hostility with Caden. I don't. I've never felt in the multiple times I've ever played this game. It's more of just like a desire to trust this person again. But like everything that surrounds them gives them all these reasons not to. And like with Ashley, and like having seen her dialogue, never like obviously never experienced myself just like playing. There is like this sort of disconnect. Like, there's this massive disconnect between the two in, like, a way that I really appreciate because, like, mechanically and, you know, narratively, they, again, they, they fill the same role, but, like, it, I really love the way these two characters diverge even when they're kind of filling the same slot because with Caden, it's not necessarily accusatory of, like, you are involved, but, like, 
you have to probably know what's going on, right? This is something that you've got to have at least heard about. And then Vega comes in and says something like, Shepard has like, not had any contact with anybody outside of the Alliance since we took him into custody. And eventually I'm just like, I shouldn't have to explain myself to you, Caden. Like, you should know, like, after all our time together, that you should know I'm not the one that's involved with just killing these, you know, random innocent people. Um, it's like, there's not really hostility, it's just more like awareness. Mm. Yeah, so less active aggression than from one uh, Miss Williams. Right. Good to know. Uh, but then Liara uh, heads over, and I'm like, Liara, where you been? Oh, this is great. Uh, <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm happy to see a friendly face for once in this damned video game. <laughs> I was say the only one, the only person that's happy to see the me. Only one so far. <laughs> yeah, I literally have in my notes like Ashley, fuck off, you condescending rude person. Like, damn, let Shepard live. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, and also Liara is badass because she really is. By this point, Liara is that biotic commando that we all know and love, mm. who's. Maybe a little bit on... Well, I mean, in 2, she was on the vengeful, angry side. Now she's more calm. She's cool. She's collected. She's got that yep. those Samara vibes going. Uh, she's just great. Uh, Liara, it's great to see her again. And she's hanging out here because uh, she believes that they've found something that might have been an ancient weapon from the Protheans they were using to shoot and kill the Reapers with. I can only assume. I can only assume that when they first saw this thing, they were like, cool, it's a big gun. <laughs> like, like Megatron um and so uh do they by this point are they calling it the crucible or is that a name no, they, they come they, up with later that's the name they come up with later because they okay. at this point they're just calling it like the, the device yeah, or device. the blueprint yeah uh so we're trying to get that before cerberus gets to it and wipes it because cerberus we don't know why they're doing it frankly i'm not sure cerberus knows why they're doing it at this point almost like that's going to be a plot point later on but for right now, Cerberus is just ransacking the place, so we need to get what we gotta get. And also maybe stop them from taking what they want to take. Uh, and as we're going through here, we kind of notice through some security tapes that one, uh, she has a... I, I'm looking back in your notes because her full name, Dr. Ava is what I remember, but her... Dr. Ava, Ava Corey. That is a... If I saw that name on a manifest, I'd be like, somebody made this name up. It's not a real name. That's that's a pen name at best. This is like somebody wrote like book title as their name or say James Valentine and like that's just that's a made up ass name. I'm sorry. Oh man. That's, uh Yeah, no. So as we soon learned, Dr. Ava was working on the inside as part of Cerberus and uh heading on in to, to infiltrate and set the whole place up and kill a lot of doctors in the process so we're chasing we're basically chasing her through the facility hopping on trams doing a bunch of cool action stuff they do a really a lot of cool things that made me really <clears> appreciate <throat> how smooth mass effect 3 runs because it it just opens them up for all these really interesting combat situations where they get you to yeah. you're, you're still doing the combat you know and love but yeah. you're you're moving between trams you've got all these these pieces of cover moving up and down there's the generators and things like that that you're trying to deal with there's just so much that's going on and yet somehow it never stacks up too much or or rather you only have to interact with what you want to interact with success is not uh 
hinging on whether or not you interact with the things you want to you're going to be able to play the way you want to i sound like a pr guy at e3 just being like players are going to be able to play the way they want to uh they will define their shepherd (laughs) (laughs) can you romance tally as a girl uh we're not talking about that yet um just q3 q3 is what we're talking about (laughs) um (laughs) no comment (laughs) so uh and as we, as we finally catch up to Doctor Ava Kore in the core, the the Prothean archives, uh, we we meet up with another old friend, uh, the elusive man. Friend? Um, sure. Question mark at the end. Friend, friend, friend in the way that Gautier would talk about somebody that he used to know. <laughs> yeah. R.I.P. Gautier. Wait, really? No, he just hasn't made music in like six oh, years. Oh God, Ken, don't do that to me. That was gonna mess me up. I was gonna. Oh boy. Oh. Mm. Oh, oh. Oh. Can't do that to me. Anyway, <laughs> um, the elusive man is is well. He's here in hologram form, and uh, you you kind of have a little discussion with him that doesn't really go anywhere. He's just kind of going like, "Trust me, he's, I." I know what I'm doing, and you're only going to get in the way. We could work together, but you don't want to. And here is maybe where in Mass Effect 2 I enjoyed the elusive man because he was the way he was always played was he knows best, even if that seems like it's actively going against your your intentions. Like he he's always kind of setting the board for himself. He played a really charismatic, likable antagonist. And, and he was an interesting antagonist because you never actually fought against him in two. You were always having to work at least alongside him, if not for him. But you also knew that he was also kind of the enemy. And that created this very interesting dynamic between the two of you. And and, and he played off that very well. I think uh, Martin Sheen's performance uh, really helped sell that, that he was like, I know what's best, Shepard. We're going to do this. You're just going to have to trust me that this is going to end in results. And we may not like the same things, but we know that we're the ones who are going to be able to get it done, so let's work together on this. Here, he's starting to turn a bit more into, like, the villain from Inspector Gadget, where he's just, like, kind of sitting there smoking and being like, well, I'm going to do this, and and screw you, Shepard, and we're doing this now. And he is so, so much less charismatic and enjoyable in this game. Well, and, and I just, it gets worse as the game goes on, which is probably what's coloring my perception of him here. But the way that Elusive Man gets treated in this game really sucks. Because it kind of retroactively well, makes me dislike him as a character when in Mass Effect 2 he is so good. He is really, really good. I think... Certainly in Mass Effect 3, he is more he's more of an upfront obstacle than he ever was, and that's like because of the nature of becoming from sort of like this pseudo antagonist to straight up an antagonist. Yeah. But to me, I what I what I appreciate at least from what I appreciate from from this perspective of watching the elusive man sort of like clearly be going down and downward spiral that we will get into more of the specifics of as the season goes on. I kind of appreciate that he was always this character who thought he was so many steps ahead that he 
was basically, you know, he had, like, all the cards in his hand. It is interesting to see him become this character that, in the grand scheme of things, is still succumbing to the same things that he thought that he was, like, smart yeah. enough to withstand. The hubris and that, like, that is great. That is... That is yeah, great. like, that. that's just kind of, like, my... It, it's sort of a Saren thing, but it is. I like seeing it drawn out more and sort of like watching it happen as it's happening. Um, and to me, that's kind of like why I'm okay with the way that things went. Um, and again, we will get into more specifics later, but I, I think the long game of how Mass Effect 3 plays his gradual decline is really cool. That I And I, I especially like the way it all culminates in the end. Um, which actually starts at this conversation, because you've got to have like this, com- this point where you do like the investigate... And then you kind of, like, try to figure out what it is that he's up to. And then you have this, like, you get Paragon Renegade checked, which is reputation checked at this point in Mass Effect 3, because they get a, they get away from, oh, like, yes, you have to be one thing or the other. Finally. Oh, thank God. Yeah, this is, like, the perfect time to talk about it. Because, um, like, you know, at this point, I, at this point in particular, I think that you can Paragon Renegade check it through it regardless, because, like, you've only had so many dialogue options to get through so like you get reputation points with each individual dialogue option you make um and you get uh yeah you get renegade paragon but it all culminates on one bar so at this point i think you have to have enough to do that um but in later cases where you have to talk to him again like you might not and then if you don't it'll all culminate into something at the very end but um yeah so like thank god that is there because now i can like always make the decision that I want to make and not the one that I feel like the game is going to punish me for not yeah. making. Yeah, to make it clear for our listeners, in case you haven't played in a while or you're not uh, up to date, uh, the thing they change about Paragon Renegade in this game is that you not only have a Paragon Renegade score, but you have an overall reputation score as well, which you can level up just by having conversations or by getting involved in conversations. Shepard apparently loves to eavesdrop and interject <laughs> on people and gets points for that. So, uh you can also build up reputation, which I don't think every Paragon Renegade can be overwritten by a reputation check, but I think a large amount of them can, where if you have enough reputation, even if you don't have the requisite Paragon or Renegade, you can still do that option if you have enough reputation for it. Yeah. I believe that's how that works. Uh, yeah. Which is so much better, because then it means that no matter what, you're always being rewarded for being involved in the story. You can eventually hit a point where, like Ken said, you get to play a little bit more of the Shepard that you want to play. I feel like this is the dialogue system that eventually got carried into uh, Dragon Age Inquisition, which is where I think they nailed the whole um, check and balance uh, reputation score stuff with Bioware. Mm. That's, That's the best it's ever been in my opinion. I don't know yeah. if that's a spicy take or not, but... Um, no, no, that sounds about right. But that stuff is... But I feel like this was the inception of that and also a huge, huge relief for Mass Effect in general because now, like, all our woes about checks are just gone. There's, yeah. There's no more... There's no more checks and balances, Ken. We finally <laughs> did away with them. Finally. Yeah, it, it, to me... <laughs> To me, it just seems indicative of something that I feel like they finally got right in Mass Effect 3 was where they were like, we want to make this as easy as possible for people to make the character that they want to make. And that means no limiting, like, you know, like the reputation checks and also just kind of like leaning into different types of romances of different identities, etc. Mm-hmm. And just 
like customization options in terms of like the way that you customize your uh, your outfit and your armor and your loadout. It's just it's it's where they get like it's where they understand what people will go to buy war games for, and it it informed things like Inquisition and Andromeda in ways that you know we we kind of took, took for granted because Anthem does none of these things. But that's another story for another day. <laughs> so after this, we chase. Dr. Ava Corey, who we have now learned, or we will shortly learn, is uh, is a robot, which apparently just totally also slipped through all the scanners and stuff. At this point, I'm like, Liara, you're Shadow Broker. Come on. <laughs> really? This got by you? Like, I'm sure the artifact was cool, but it was it that cool? Like, come on. Uh, and this actually, I want to bring this up because this is kind of funny. Um, you have this whole sequence where James, like, Eve is about to get away, and you've been chasing her a bunch, and she's about to get away in a shuttle, and then James just straight up yeets her back into the ground with his shuttle. The one good thing that James does. Uh, <laughs> uh, and then... And at which point all, like, her skin burns yeah, off. Yeah, all her skin burns off, and you interior. see... Yeah, you see that she is a robot, and then she just starts beating the bejesus out of ashley slash caden uh at which point obviously ken yeah. is furious and i'm just standing back like let's see how this pans out um, <laughs> get her you got it ashley <laughs> come on <laughs> um and then there's this sequence which is so i think very indicative of how mass effect 3 has changed that there is the sequence where the robot then starts running at you and it goes into slow motion and i swear to god someone must have played like red dead redemption or something i don't know if that was out at this point in time yet it was uh yeah so somebody played red dead redemption and was just like yo this slow down time thing is cool let's do that because shepherd just has their pistol out and you gotta shoot the robot a bunch of times before it gets to you and murders you um and if you have certain pistols from either like a new game plus playthrough or you've just equipped them at this point, it can make this sequence nigh impossible because they might just fire too slowly. Because I think you have to put in just a certain number of shots to do it, or they just can't put out the damage and the time required to do it. And so. There are actually situations where I'm reading this on the wiki, and I'd forgotten about this, but I had this happen to me before where I had a slow-firing pistol. I just kept getting murdered over and over again. I literally had to... You have to shoot from the hip instead of aiming because that's the only way that it will be fast enough for you to take down the robot in time. It's a really dumb thing. That's I still, never thought of that. That's still kind of interesting <laughs> because then it's like Shepard is literally acting so fast that she has to straight up, like, fan the hammer on this robot just dump from the waist and nail every shot because you got to be shepherd at this exact moment in time and in a way that is maybe an oversight but in another way i totally dig it that's really cool um <laughs> but then we take down dr ava and considering that shepherd is just a hoarder at this point we take the body back onto the normandy uh because it seems like every time we're like oh this seems useful tank with a krogan in it you know unusable geth person who is shooting at other robots for me let's just put it on the normandy and see what happens nothing ever important ever happens when we drag things back onto the normandy um 
we we take off and and we are off on our way to the citadel uh and so this is going to be the last section it's been a very long podcast thank you for those it has been who have stuck with us we are what like hour and 15 minutes and we've only gotten through earth and mars but we knew we knew going into this that this was going to be one of our longest episodes of the season and and we are glad if you've stuck with us to this point uh thank you so much uh again we love doing this we love that y'all want to listen to this and we got a little bit more to go here because we're going to the citadel guess who's here guess who the fuck is here that's right not udina not bailey diana allers we're gonna start with her oh my god no no, no. we're gonna talk about bailey first uh okay good no i we, we got some stuff we got a lot to do before we get to her um yeah so bailey i like bailey i don't know i've always liked him you've got him dirty cop him. he's a dirty cop but like you know he, he just tries man he's just trying to he's do got his back job. though he's just trying to do his job i always liked him he's he's a good guy he's he, he is yeah and he helps you out with with the whole Thane Sun thing. He like he like he's got your back. You know he's he's trying. Um, Diana Allers. Maybe I'm just so now we're now we're skipping to her. Yeah. Well, I mean, what, what else do we have to talk about with, with Bailey? Like, well, we gotta go. Like, we gotta go see. The, we gotta go see the council. We gotta go see Dina. I, we thought, gotta go I thought you talked to on... Diana Allers before you talked to the council. Well, you technically can. I've always like in every. I've always talked to her like as I'm leaving the Citadel. Oh, see, but she's can... just, like, right there, so I always just talk to her she right is. away. To... All right, let's go ahead. Because let's, let's... this is a good point to bring up uh, war assets, which is a thing that has become yeah. a thing. Uh, which really is not a thing anymore now that they have maybe balanced the game to be a little bit better about this stuff. Uh, so the main, let's say, progression mechanic slash, like, ending determining mechanic in this game is your war assets so throughout the game the actions that you take the things that you do the quests you complete will add worse war assets to your total pool and you want to have it above a certain minimum readiness for when you eventually go back to retake earth from the reapers and ideally you want to have it at certain levels to achieve specific endings that you might be going for and that system is a bit complicated we'll get into that the very nitty-gritty of it when we're actually doing said endings but basically the thing to know is that a lot of your decisions in this game have consequences that directly lead to whether or not you get war assets or potentially different war assets uh, mm-hmm. that might have differing values or might have fairly equivalent values or you might make a decision that you would think would lose you or assets and then you kind of get them anyways what's up chuchanka so uh (laughs) with diana allers she is one of the earliest examples of war assets that you can get just because she is right there um and so for for anyone who is not in the know a diana allers is a mo-capped character uh mo-capped by at the time was she with ign or, or she, was. Um, she was by Jessica Chobot, uh, who was a video game personality. I actually don't know what she's up to nowadays. She's she's writing um, writing games, I believe. Or she mm, let me double check. Actually, what you up to now, Jessica Chobot? What you up to, Justin? This is a thing I think about. Never actually, I never think about this, but now I am curious. Um, and maybe most of Nerdist. Oh, she's at Nerdist now. Ah, oh, okay. Oh yeah, okay. That may, I could see that. I could see that. Um, maybe I'm just thinking about this, and this is going to tell you immediately how I feel about Diana Allers. Um, maybe I'm just thinking about this because I'm also thinking about Ronda Rousey and MK11. But mm. 
not for the exact same reasons, but just in the sense of like it's a, it's even a thing nowadays where large games will be like let's put a celebrity in because they can just kind of add this very perfunctory one-off character that shows up for a few cameos and then they get to record a video where they're like oh hey this person was in the game and we're going to record a video where they're talking about the experience of being in a video game for the first time and how cool video games are and usually you see it with celebrities that are not quote-unquote endemic that are not uh heavily involved in video games or maybe they're like a quote they're a gamer but the thing they actually do is you know it's like marshawn lynch where they're a football player or it's ronda rousey where they're a ufc fighter slash well failed ufc fighter slash failed wrestler uh (laughs) slash current transphobe yeah yeah slash current sandy hook truther uh you know just to really get it all out and even and even like as recently as mass andromeda they had like natalie dormer and Andromeda, like, and I had that same, that exact shut same the, video, the, like, where... Shut the fuck up. Wait, Natalie Dormer's in Mass Effect Andromeda? Yeah. Okay, I'm glad we're playing Mass Effect Andromeda now. I love Natalie Dormer. Damn. Oh, she's excellent, and she's great in the game, too. Fuck. Okay. I'm really glad we're playing Mass Effect Andromeda now. <laughs> Never mind, everything has changed. Natalie Dormer's <laughs> in the game. That didn't work for yeah. Telltale's Game of Thrones, but maybe it'll work for this one. Gats <laughs> um, uh, and Anthony's in there, too, uh, who played, um... Oh, fuck. I, it's been so long since I've watched Game of Thrones. Um, Wait, are you talking about... Not the guy who played Jamie, is it? Brinley Baratheon. Oh, he's great. Okay. okay. Yeah, he's Gil. All right. Okay, maybe I'm, maybe I'm open to giving Andromeda a second chance now. Those are good, those are good castings. Anyway. Now I was getting my boy... Uh, Oberyn, Oberyn Martell in there, but uh, oh well. We have to. We have anyway, to back to Diana Ellers. Yeah. So let this me, is like a very. Let me let me preface this with. In the South, we have a saying. That saying is "Bless her heart." It's what you say when you're about <laughs> to say something that's incredibly mean, but you really want to softball it in. Bless her heart. This is not a good character. <laughs> This is a really I, weird character that it's a, such a loaded character too. Just in like all of the connotations that surround it, it's so yeah. Maybe this is a really weird time to have this whole situation where, I mean, so embedded journalism is definitely a thing. You know, like that. Yeah. That is a like in, like I, w- I would say up front the concept of Diana is, is pretty cool. Like I, I like the idea of this character that is like yes, you know, the embedded journalist that is. She like she even has like she takes Zaid's role broom like she's not like a character that they just yeah throw, toss to they the did side. not necessarily like, half ass this they maybe three quarters ass this um they definitely put more work into it than I would have normally expected from this sort of inclusion of a celebrity uh into it that being said I'm I'm gonna just get some of my early thoughts out. The whole um, gaming journalist being in a game is already kind of weird. That's that's just already got its like weird little thing on it. Yeah. Um, and then like in a post two thousand fourteen world, oh, that yeah. would blow the fuck up. Yeah, yeah. Whereas here it was very much like, oh, isn't it cool? This person that does all these IGN videos and gaming videos like, that you love. This journalist is the journalist in our game. But at, at the same time, like granted, 
even nowadays you have a situation where YouTubers are in games and things like that. Um, yeah. So it's it's maybe not that weird. I just feel like this is maybe an outlier as a whole um, because this has never really happened again since. Uh, you yeah. do have cases of like, um, I believe like Alana Pierce is doing some voice acting right now. Um, Greg Miller has done Greg some Miller has done some voice acting, but they've kind of moved on from the the bastions yeah. of gaming journalism into their own sort of uh not that their work is not journalistic it's it's just that they're doing their like youtube stuff now and you get into those right. areas you know you can still make the disclosures and stuff like that uh and and be all all tight on that end and and yeah and, and in fairness chobot was in a sort of like that yeah she was in a host that role. space she as was well. not like, like she didn't write that she was like jur- she was journalism adjacent as yes. opposed to like working in journalism right and yeah, and she didn't pen the Mass Effect three review or anything like that. No. Um, no. So it definitely is kind of very odd in that respect. Just again, when you think about this game and what has happened in the time since, it's weird to see this again. All that being said, like just examining this, you know, let's use all of our brain power to push all that other stuff out and examine this in a in a vacuum. Uh, yeah. She is. <laughs> It's just not a great role because the whole again, even if you just look at it in a vacuum, the whole setup of it's it it sounds cool at first. I really like the idea of having you know maybe like a Hunter S. Thompson slash uh, you know like Hemingway like like journalist type hanging around. Uh, there could be like a cool setup there where you know like you're sitting around drinking whiskey and they're telling you like stories about subjects that they've followed in the past like i think there was a lot of really cool stuff they could have done with this idea that has not been explored in a game space and that bioware could do really really well like i just have this very vivid image of a dialogue in my mind where you're sitting at a table drinking whiskey with this person and they're telling you about like oh yeah i followed around this turian ambassador for a year and saw all kinds of stuff reported on Mm corruption in the citadel and all that kind of stuff like get really like take like a a very the wire approach to it to where you could get like really cool insight into what journalism looks like in mass effect because that is an area that they haven't explored yeah and i think that's a really cool thing too that you could have gone into that area where you're like okay you know you you talk about journalism and and things like the fifth estate and stuff like that like what does that look like in mass effects universe beyond just the the quote-unquote cnn's the the news networks that they that they have there i want to know like, like the algelani and the yeah i want to know like what characters like that the investigative journalists are doing like are they writing stories and like they had emily wong doing? yeah that was really cool wong kind of that was really cool <laughs> and but then they like you know they make this other character that i and all they end up doing with it is like she has she's a war asset and like she affects your war assets when she does these interviews that like you can answer one way or another but then you can sleep with her and it's like yeah okay so i was that i was building to that point that where you have at least in my mind i had this really cool idea of what this could have been and in essence she ends up being this very um news news host type thing where she just asks you questions there's occasionally times where she tries to like gotcha and things like that and you have to like spin it a little bit and you get like these little moments where you can be like oh yeah and and you can get war asset points from that uh if if you like pass those checks and then no matter what gender 
your your shepherd is diana allers will always kind of make a pass at you and it's at this point that we do have to say like the way that allers is portrayed aesthetically is also very they found the world's tightest dress gave her only that and then vacuum packed that damn thing like just sucked all Mm. remaining air out of it every time i look at the thing i'm like that is that looks uncomfortable to move in like i don't know how legs are supposed to move in that like i think she just rolls from place to place (laughs) um but and then they also put show what faith on it that that what sorry they also have show what faith on it which like which seems like i said weird in in like i said back yeah like said it back with miranda that it's a weird thing that i wish bioware would stop doing where they stop scanning faces yeah for characters because I mean, and granted, like, the ones in Andromeda don't look as bad and weird and just, like, clashing with the characters that sort of exist in Mass Effect's actual art style. But this was, like, the most egregious and weird one of them all to me because it is, like, more so than, like, Miranda, like, we, talk, we talked about all the stuff about, like, she's portrayed a certain way, but she's not just, like, this thing to be gawked at where Jessica Chobot's Jessica character looks and sounds like her and then it's treated the way that it is. It's like, I... And it's that it's, the only interactions you have with her are really those moments where you can either build war assets or you can, like, call her up to the room to, like, sleep with her. And yeah. it makes that whole interaction, like, even set aside the journalist part of it and the weird conflict of interest that arises there, which there's, like, a really weird line of dialogue where she's like, oh, I don't care about it if you don't, and stuff like that. <laughs> and like We can't talk about this. Yeah like shove that to the side with all your strength even then it's still really weird to have in a game where i will say most of the love interests in this game are actually extremely well written and well done the best the series has ever had yeah like that you bar none that you still have this kelly chambers ass character in here Mm. um is just weird it's it's just all skeevy in a way that it I I don't even think it did well back then. Like I do remember, and, and granted, probably for different reasons than we are voicing here that that there was some a dislike of this character, and then going into it now years later, it's not much better. And yeah, I, I kept calling her up for the, the war assets and stuff, but yeah, once she, like, makes a pass, it gets, like, really creepy, and then she, like, she plays it off in a way that's, like, really nonchalant in a way that mm. was also kind of weird, like, if you're just like, no, I'm not doing that, she's like, oh, yeah, it was just a joke, I would never do that, and just, like, walks off, and I was like, I'm pretty sure if I said yes, you would have just, like, jumped me, so, um, yeah, it's, the way that was all of this was written and done it's again it just it's just a massive missed opportunity for something that could have been great it's not even like it's not just a missed opportunity but the fact that like i'd rather them have like not done it at all than gone this direction absolutely absolutely like do anything else like there were so many other things you could have done here and again like please make the game where you're hanging out with the hunter s thompson character on the spaceship hearing about what it's like to report corruption in palavin or like sneak into and embed in 
in a sorry hospital or something to write about conditions there and treatment of patients like come on there's so much good stuff you could do mm. it's just it drives me insane <laughs> oh. <laughs> anyway i guess we okay, at this point like, we never that. had to talk yeah, about we never had again. to talk about it again. So. we're done we got that off our chest we're good it's it's all gone never have to talk about that again <laughs> So right. to to really calm ourselves, let's go see the council. <laughs> let's, um, no, I I will say that at, at this point you are given a choice where it's like, hey, do you want to go see the council first? Do you want to go see your human squad mate that got beat up? Um, I will I will say that I went to see the council first because, well, they kind of also imply that like Ashley is just out of it, so she probably won't even be awake by the if you go to see her first, uh. But I went to her second. Uh, I imagine you probably went to Kaiden right away. So let's talk with you a little bit about what that discussion is like. So, I mean, you, you do get there, and then they're like, they're obviously still out of it. They're, you know, knocked out, bruised up, real bad. Like, I don't know how, I don't remember how Ashley looks, but like, Kaiden's like beat up in the face and like, God, it's, he, lo- he looks a mess. Um, and you, all you really get, like, you kind of talk to him while he's unconscious, which is, you know, it's weird. But the, the main point is that the doctor sees that you're there, and, like, you say to them, like, anything that anything you need, let me know, I will make it happen. And the, that factors in to the relationship, regardless of, you know, romantic or platonic. They, that when they wake up, they will know that you, that you were there, that you came to see them. And it's sort of like this gradual thing that we're have to, we'll be talking about the next couple episodes, at least, about, like, kind of making nice or not depending on how you decide to go about this and um you also get a chance to like stop by the little store that they have at the hospital you can buy gifts that you can give them um, um i got i got kate in a bottle of whiskey see i didn't buy ashley anything that's fair i mean i i bought her a, the, the way she spoke to you the way she spoke to you book. i wouldn't <laughs> Her, I Analyzing your ingrained racist views. Yeah, yeah. I passively, aggressively bought her a "Be a Better Person" book. Um, yeah, that that's kind of how mine went too. Is that Shepard just kind of goes in and talks to them while they're unconscious, and it's just like, hey, you know, you've you've given a lot. We're asking you to give a lot more. You know, I hope you can get back from this. We need you. Um, I, you have a line in here that you specifically quote the alliance could use you, could use you, I could use you. I don't feel like that happened in my game, but it could have, and I just didn't notice it as much because I knew that their relationship would always be platonic, whereas yeah. the, it might have stuck out more to you as obviously yours can be romantic. Uh, yeah. I don't know. Anyways, that's that's a nice little moment. There's this game is filled with nice little moments. It does that very well. It's it's a very it's a thing that Bioware has become known for. I think at this point that they're good at the little moments, the little character moments. They're really nice. Mm. They're um, as my English teacher in high school would have called them. They're they're nibbly bits. They're they're, they're <laughs> that's that's what she liked to call like little things that maybe aren't necessarily like totally pertinent to the overall themes of the book but they're nice little things that you can dissect and look at and be like oh this is nice mm. this this gives me a nice little warm feeling it's a nibbly it's a nibbly bit <laughs> she was <laughs> she was a great teacher basically the reason i write for a living now it's yeah she was great um so then we also have to decide who our doctor is going to be for the normandy we got to recruit either uh 
Michelle, Michelle, who, um, I'm trying, she was, um, don't help me with this right away. I'm trying to exactly remember how we know her. Uh, was she on, she was not on Zeus Hope, right? She was, um, oh, come on, Michelle, Michelle, Michelle. I know, she's a Mass Effect 2 character. No, she's not. She's a Mass Effect 1 character. Mm Mm-hmm. Where was she in Mass Effect? She was. She must have been working somewhere then. Would you like to find a friend? Yeah, sure. Like, can I can I call? She can was, I call she, Zaid? Can Zaid answer for me? She was the doctor that uh, Gareth Zaid. was saving when you first recruit him. Oh, okay. Well, I'm still going to call. Hey, the one that fifth hey, is coming after. Hey, Zaid. Hey, uh-huh. Zaid. Who who is Michelle again? She's the one that what needed saving from the Gareth situation. Oh, thank you, Zaid. Oh, Vito. Oh. <laughs> oh I'm never God. going to miss an opportunity to do the Zaid voice. The fans want it. I always want it. We're an hour and a half into this. I get to do the Zaid voice. <laughs> mm. um, besides, we're going to see him eventually anyways, because I'm really excited for that. <laughs> I'm glad that Zaid is back with all the pomp and circumstance deserving of his station. <laughs> um... So, look, I picked Chakwas because, look, you get Who doesn't? you get assets from leaving Chakwas on the Citadel. But Chakwas is the Normandy's doctor, alright? She is with us to the goddamn bitter end, alright? She is ride or die on the Normandy. She's got friends on that Normandy. She's got people that she wants to look out for. And damn it, she's my best pal. Because Joker's not that fun to hang out with for an extended period of time, and Edie can't get drunk. So, Chocolate <laughs> is ride or die with the Normandy, damn it. Oh. <sighs> can't believe there are people out there picking some random ass Michelle. <laughs> More like Melissa. Uh-huh. <laughs> Speaking of people that we had to pick over other people. Yeah, so this is where I think our takes kind of diverge because at, at this point, um, it, well, no, it, I'm reading back over your notes and maybe you are kind of with me on this one. Uh, no matter what you have chosen up to this point, whether you wanted Anderson to be the counselor or not, because of various reasons and things that happen in the books, uh, Udina is now the human ambassador slash counselor. Uh Actually, I don't think they share that title. I think it's just counselor. But uh, Udina is wired, man. He's spicy. He's getting feisty. He wants some damn help for Earth. Earth is burning. And you all are watching this happen. Damn it. I like it. I like the spirit I'm seeing from Udina. I show up. He's ready to go. He's he's guns blazing. He's not taking none of this bullshit from the other counselors. Hell yeah, Udina. I'm with you. Let's do this. Like, I and even then, I was a big fan of Udina at this exact moment. And even then, you also get like the most personable conversation you ever get with Udina, like throughout the whole trilogy mm-hmm. here as well, because like you can talk to yeah. him about like. How are, like, how are you doing with the invasion? And he talks about like how he's constantly having to ke- check the casualty list of like Alliance stations because like he knows so many people, mm-hmm. and like it's it's like it's it's something that happens a few times in this game is that like people that this game these the past games like sort of demonized and made villains 
they're just people at, like in the midst of all of this they're hurting just as bad as we are yeah they, they do an and extremely they do an extremely good job of if you had disliked udina up to this point which granted i had a complicated relationship let's say with udina up to mm. this point i always saw him as that politician who wants results he doesn't really care what other people think about him as long as he's getting those results done and so like it was very much a an elusive man relationship where i knew that working with him was going to be for the better even if i didn't enjoy it whereas anderson i love that dude but he's a bit of a puppy dog in the political realm and i need a i need a pit bull i need a i need a fighter in there mm. um so i i shouldn't say that because pit bulls are actually the sweetest dogs in the world and 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 they're just great so i need like a comical cartoon dog with boxing gloves on that has been trained by apollo creed <laughs> to fight because his father was killed by the Russian dog, and he wants revenge. Air Ro- so you got it, you know. Air Rocky. Check it out. It's my new movie. <laughs> uh, yeah, so the council at this point... This is, this is actually one of the cool um, tensions in the game that I actually really enjoyed. Because it really highlights... I think one of the major themes around the reaper conflict because for a long time it was always just kind of painted as oh it's the it's the galaxy versus the reapers you know it's we need to get everybody right. together and on the same page uh but something that we kind of touched on here we'll really get into once we start doing the um i, I don't know if we've explicitly laid out when we're doing from ashes uh i want to say it's it's not next week but a week after or something like that uh it's like after well to avoid for it's like it's after the, the thing next, that involves is it the, after the next the, main it, hub. It's after the thing that involves Udina and oh, okay. Wow, we're waiting. That, we're waiting that long to do from Ashes. Well, I mean, it from Ashes is on Eden Prime, so I always like to take Caden with me. Ah, okay, yeah, that makes sense. Okay, I get you. I get you. Yeah. Well, I'm cool with that. I, I am going to, however, mention that there's there are discussions you have with a maybe a character that you meet in that DLC that uh, reflect how other cycles matched up against mm. the reapers because as we have already learned there's not one cycle but many cycles and uh, all of them have fallen to the reapers and a lot of them in a lot of them the 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 races were kind of united under one front uh often under like totalitarian rule by just whatever the dominant uh species was in that cycle Whereas ours is very unique in the fact that there is not one dominant species. It's There's more of a democracy installed. We have a council. We have all the different races are kind of trying to work together. But they also all have their own interests. And while that's like one of our greatest strengths in that we have all these different ideas, all these different approaches, all these different skill sets, it's also one of our weaknesses in that everyone is out for their own interests. Mm-hmm. And that's made abundantly clear when Shepard is making a case that we need to go and we need to rescue earth. Everyone else is saying like earth is not the only place that's getting attacked by reapers right now. Like Palavin, yeah. which is the Turian homeworld is getting attacked. Um, the, for the life of me, I can't remember the name of it. I feel really bad right now. The sorry homeworld. Uh, Thessia. Thank you. Thessia is, is under attack. There's some stuff happening out in the outer traverse. The, the quarians are acting weird. Uh, the Salarians are getting a little, itchy to um you know it's everybody is kind of you know the war has come to their homes and so they are concerned about their homes and they you basically after a very unfruitful council meeting where they just expressly tell you like we can't help earth because we got to worry about ourselves right now 
you are then later met by the counselor for the Syrians, who basically tells you, I can help you if you can help me save Paladin. And that is that sort of sets up the general driving uh like sense of progression in this game is that you need to help all these races settle their affairs so that way you can go get their help and then bring their forces to bear on earth and that's a like you make explicit reference in your notes ken to dragon age origins which is totally fair like that is definitely the sort of thing that's going on here where you are going to help certain races to get their help in order to complete the final battle and where it worked really well in origins i think it works really well in mass effect 3 because it not only lets you kind of delineate out like different okay when we go to palavin obviously we're going to deal with characters that are related to the turians so i wonder who we're going to run into there and when you deal with thessia stuff maybe you're going to run into some of your sorry friends and when you deal with maybe not necessarily solarians but maybe things involving the krogans there will be things there too and so it really lets them set up and kind of bring these larger conflicts that have been uh hovering in the background of mass effect to a close in a way that still feels natural i think it's it was a really good way of framing the story as in in the same way that mass effect 2 and the loyalty missions were settling the affairs of all the crewmates involved the actual main story missions of mass effect 3 are there are these long-standing conflicts that we need to put to rest because there are bigger issues that we need to take right. care of. And so it's Shepard going out there and just saying, no, I'm going to finish this. You're going to sit down and shut up because we've got a bigger issue to deal with. And I I, I just, I dig that. I think it's a really cool way mm-hmm. of, of setting it up. So I, I'm interested. And in it also that. like has, brings opportunity for all sorts of people to be like these big players in the, the galaxy in ways that like, characters that were like they had like you know they were obviously relevant to our interests but they it was like basically things that started out in Mass Effect 1 are gonna come to fruition here in Mass Effect 3 with individual characters finally basically stepping up and taking their rightful place Mm -hmm. in the galaxy yeah it's really cool and that's that's when you get some like the best moments yeah seeing how all those characters especially from Mass Effect 1 how all those characters have grown from their scrappy selves to where they have eventually ended up is really satisfying in a way. And it, it also like shows that the effect that Shepard has is not even necessarily a direct one, but in the way that Shepard has inspired mm. other people in the universe or in the galaxy to take a hold of their destinies and to change things for the better, to not assume that everything should continue with the status quo, that you can do better. Uh, it's, it's just a really heartening way. And I, I like ending on that note with our recap for this week i think that's where we should end is that little heartening note that uh because otherwise visiting the citadel was really sad man i got really sad visiting the citadel with all the background talk about all the fatalistic stuff around yeah. the reapers there's one where uh an older woman is talking to an embassy worker and you can it becomes very clear over time that uh she has some level of memory loss uh and and can't remember her her son very well she keeps confusing the embassy worker for her son's former girlfriend as you soon can intuit the son has died in battle somewhere against the reapers and it's it's a very very sad uh plot line that i kept coming back to as i visited the citadel Mm over the course of my playthrough and there's stuff like that all over the place yeah just like on all sorts of levels like there are all these little conversations you can hear and these like plot lines every time you like 
come back to an area, it's progressed a little bit more, and that was last throughout the whole game, and you learn, like, a lot of crazy, awful things, like, that aren't necessarily um, expanded upon in the actual, like, mainline of the game. Mm-hmm. It's, there, like, there are going to be a few that I know I'm going to want to touch on as we're going yeah, through. Yeah, I think, I think sure. we've already talked about one in this podcast so far, which is learning about who Liara's father is. Um, mm. Yeah. I will say, I think we might have also mentioned this in podcast once already, but one of my favorite ones is, I think it's in the the atrium, the the like shops and stuff, where you keep coming back, and it's two women, one of whom is the wife mm-hmm. of a business guy, and the other whom is the mistress, and you're you're realizing that they're talking about like how he is and how he's safe, and you're kind of like, oh, this is kind of weird. They're like both concerned about him, but then you realize the reason they're talking about him is because they have in secret fallen in love with each other and plan on leaving him and eloping together which like more power to (laughs) y'all fuck yeah (laughs) steal his money on the way out (laughs) um it was great that's like one of my favorite side plot lines in all of mass effect i was like these two are the greatest characters in mass effect and i want to play their video game (laughs) It's, it's like a way out but in space and awesome uh so yeah, we also have a, a question that we're going to answer here at the end, and I'm going to drag the way that I set this up out because I'm opening Gmail right now to look at the question that we're going to talk about. So I'm going to narrate myself as I'm opening this, looking for, here we go. So we have another question here from one of our high-level patrons uh one rain thank you again for sending in your question uh we we're gonna get through all the ones that you sent us so uh this is the second of your question that you sent us uh that we that we want to talk about uh do you guys buy into the shep indoctrination theory i think there is a fair amount of evidence even at the end of me1 when you can talk Saren into a moment of lucidity i feel like the major problem is i'm not sure i trust bioware to actually be smart enough to craft it so the reason why i wanted to save this one this was actually the first question that uh that this patron sent us and uh we held it aside because i wanted to wait until mass effect 3 to talk about it because this is going to be one of the things that will probably come up as we talk about mass effect 3 in general which is all the kind of different let's say threads that bioware left open for what would eventually culminate in the end of the reapers or maybe some sort of reasoning behind the reapers or just some greater theory behind what was going on in mass effect 3 and the mass effect series in general and uh there's a lot of stuff i think we talked about it uh at the end of our mass effect 2 series uh about how there were a lot of hints towards things like dark matter uh in in like tally's recruitment mission and on ilium uh where you kind of hear things like oh we're really interested in dark matter we hear dark matter is really important to where they were hinting at it enough that it kind of seemed like it would perk your ears up to be like oh maybe this is a thing to pay attention to uh and one of the prevailing theories about mass effect 3 uh which if you don't want to hear about this i i wouldn't consider it a spoiler because it is not canon it is it is a theory and it is not anything that actually happens in the game but if you'd still like to remain unspoiled please uh this is the time to duck out of the podcast thank you for tuning in um is that shepherd due to their prolonged exposure two reapers both in person and through relays and things like that has been gradually indoctrinated and that portions of mass effect 3 if not a large amount of mass effect 3 are 
induced by indoctrination and Shepard is actually indoctrinated and doing what the Reapers want them to. Uh, It has been a long time since I visited this theory, uh, which was kind of first posited around the time that Mass Effect 3 came out and was a response to the endings of that game not being satisfactory to some, which is I guarantee you it's going to be something we talk about a lot on this podcast. Um, (sighs) What I will say is that in long-running fantasy series, I think a lot of people build up expectations for themselves that are not possible to be fulfilled. And that's because I think it started around the time that Lost was on television, but there was this element of the mystery of a show. There's a a TED Talk by uh, J.J. Abrams that he does about Lost and the idea of the magician's box i think he called it the magician's box uh it's i I would never recommend to anyone to watch a ted talk because they're mostly useless and this one is too but it is very maybe informative about the way that these sorts of stories are built and that the allure of what could possibly be inside the box is oftentimes more appealing than what is actually inside the box. If you want like a very clear example, look at Pulp Fiction, which is a movie uh, like centered around a briefcase that has a an alluring shine inside of it, and you never find out what's inside of it. And that's like a really cool thing, but then the second you find out what it is, you kind of lose it. Again, The Prestige, Christopher Nolan made an entire movie about this where a lot of the magic of the trick is the prestige and the moment where you can bring something back and knowing how the trick works is often not only disappointing but uglier and less interesting than just believing that magic happened in front of you and that is my frequent feeling about the reaction of fans to many stories nowadays is that they are disappointed because it was more interesting to them to theorycraft about where a story could possibly go than to follow the actual story. And while I think Mass Effect still has a lot of fans that really enjoy it for the human stories it told, for the relationships, for the companions and things like that, uh, the indoctrination theory for me falls under that to where I think it's people trying to cope with this thing, not delivering mm. on what they believe it could have lived up to, or even delivering up to a standard that they had created for themselves in their heads. Now, granted, I'm also going to give this the massive caveat of it really seems like in Mass Effect 3, for a large portion of it, even during the game itself, that Bioware did not know how the story was going to end. Because, as we will soon learn, the Crucible is kind of this thing that isn't tangible or understandable for like 80 85 percent of the game you don't really know what it's actually going to do you just know that the protheans were building it to counter the reapers so we should probably build it too and we're just going to put all our chips on that card uh and that's i think that's both interesting and frustrating and i can understand why people would get annoyed with it i can also you know, it's a little bit like, I, I'm just going to, I'm not going to bring it up because it is like this, the Game of Thrones episode that happened just this last week. It's still fresh. I don't want to like spoil anybody on that and just like spoiler laden this. But I just think that it, it, let's use a very obvious example. Like, why didn't the hobbits just fly to Mordor on the eagles? Like, 
um not only is that like kind of a reductive way of looking at the story but i think it's missing the forest for the trees and you suddenly turn it into this situation of like you're tearing down a lot of this thing that you love just because you didn't like some aspects of it and critique is maybe learning that you can enjoy a thing while having issues with it and so this this is my very 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 ranty long answer of saying that I don't buy into Shep indoctrination theory because it isn't what happens. And I, while it's certainly interesting that like fan theories can prevail like that, you know, I I was just today digging into over on the waypoint podcast uh, last week, they talked about this whole thing about how uh, the TV show St. Elsewhere had a bunch of cameos of actors who were in character from their respective TV shows. And then when the show ended, it revealed the whole thing was the imagination of a kid and none of St. Elsewhere actually happened. So people online then posited that all the characters that appeared in character on St. Elsewhere were then also parts of this kid's imagination. And so massive parts of TV were wholesale imagined by this kid in the universe. And that's like a fantastic rabbit hole you can fall down. It's a really good time. I highly recommend it. Uh, that stuff is fun. That stuff fills the hours of the day and fills forum message boards. And if that's cool and you like doing that, then you can have some fun with that. But I think you got to understand that it's a theory at the end of the day. Mass Effect is what was presented. And it's cool to theorize that stuff, but especially part of the thing I don't buy into with the Shep indoctrination theory is it kind of was a side a sidecar to a growing resentment and open backlash to Bioware over dislike of the endings that was very mm. uncouth and um, not good. And so that kind of taints it for me as well as I just look at it as this is a bunch of people really mad about the thing that they like not being what they wanted it to be. And yeah. uh, that kind of taints it. And always, now whenever I think about it, I always kind of think about it in that context. So I think it's an interesting thought experiment. I don't hold any actual weight to it. Uh, and right. I kind of wish that, you know, it, it, it's interesting. I'll just leave it at that. To give like a, let's jump off what you were saying specifically about how people, it, it, like the indoctrination theory is, is people, like it is the culmination of a reaction to something. Two, my my reaction, my answer to this question is twofold. One, no, I don't think the indoctrination theory holds water because the actual text of the video game Mass Effect Three does not support it, and that is both in things like the, the extended cut making the actual you know what actually happens at the end of that game more definitive than it ever was before, and also we we'll get into Leviathan eventually, but. The whole, like, the, the actual foundation of the indoctrination theory requires something that happens at the end of Mass Effect 3 to be not real. And Leviathan basically makes it real, like, definitively real. So it's not, like, basically, the, the indoctrination theory as it exists and the way that most people talk about it does not hold water um, with what's actually seen in Mass Effect 3. But also, to jump off what you're saying, like, indoctrination theory exists because it's going back to kind of what I was talking about in the suicide mission episode it was like the indoctrination theory feels like a way of people trying to make there be a definitive best ending and like a way to sort of like be like I played the game right I gamed the system to get the best possible outcome where again like that I don't feel like that exists in Mass Effect 3 and the indoctrination theory is sort of people 
trying to basically justify a decision that they make at the end, and which I mean, you you can have like a reasoning for making that decision. I made that decision myself, but if it's you trying to find the thing that is the canon or the right way to do it, I think you kind of completely misinterpreted both that ending and just like the math theory in general. We all know canon was shooting the catalyst. We all know it in our heart of hearts. <sighs> uh, yeah. I, I don't want to like too much downtrod on it because I think I'm also lumping a lot of my residual dislike of certain corners of the internet and the way they reacted to the ending of Mass Effect 3. Um, whereas, like I stated earlier, it, you know, indoctrination theory can just be like a fun thought experiment, a way for people to yeah. go back through the games and maybe try and examine like, oh, were there hints to it beforehand? Are there ways that you could interpret a line that would maybe hint at it? Like, I think that is a, a cool way of re-experiencing the fiction in a way that can give you greater appreciation for what Bioware did because, you know, I'm certain that there are probably lines. That, so I have not read the indoctrination manifesto in a long time, but uh, I'm, I'm certain that people have found lines dating back to as, um, as rain notes here uh, in mass effect one that hint at those ideas and can draw parallels to characters like Saren, I do think that is an interesting idea that Shepard could become an eventual parallel to Saren as opposed to the character in Mass Effect 3 who ends up being the parallel to Saren, which is the elusive man. Uh, there there are cool ideas there. It's just, again, you, when we start talking about like buying into it is where it, the rubber meets yeah. the road. And especially while it could have held some water when Mass Effect 3 first came out, the the stuff that gets added over time uh just kind of eventually just goes like nope this is what happened we're being way more overt which part of me i mean we will talk about this in our what i expect to be a very long episode about the ending of this game but uh maybe kind of takes away some of the magic and again like this goes back to the magician's box thing of like you enjoy the not knowing more than the knowing and mm-hmm. uh, and indoctrination theory is a way to keep the not knowing alive, and and to keep that air of mystery about like maybe this could be real, maybe this is what's really happening, and Bioware is going to come around with a Mass Effect four and going to reveal that this is what actually happened. And part of me is like, oh, you know that that idea is kind of cool that they could like set up that sort of thing that they could either plan that far ahead or just kind of pull that sort of twist. But at the same time like we've talked about it a few times here one of the things i really like about mass effect 3 and the mass effect trilogy is that it has a finite start and end it it is the story of shepherd and it starts somewhere and it it ends somewhere and having that is good and i like that and Mm -hmm. no matter what your ending says about whether or not truly is the end of shepherd or not it is the end of shepherd's story as it is told to us and I think it's important to acknowledge that closure, even if you're going to add right. extra stuff onto it. Uh, but thanks again, Rain, for sending in that message. Again, if you want to send in a message of your own, if you want to ask us random questions, if you want to grill us a little bit more about all this stuff, you can head on over to patreon.com slash normdfm. You can do that. You can check out the tiers, see what it's going to cost you. Whatever it costs you, we're just happy to have you. We're happy to have you listening, happy to have you donating, keeping the lights on, and also just tuning in because... 
this is all about Mass Effect. We do it for the passion. You know, that's what we're in it for. Ken talked me into this thing with the loosest of pitches, and it was basically just born <laughs> out of a feeling of me going, man, AAA games just aren't doing what Mass Effect used to do for me, so maybe I should just play through Mass Effect again. And that was enough to talk me into a podcast. Yeah. And here we are, season three, opener, in the books. It's done. It's in there. Longest podcast we've had so far. It's it's incredible. That's what we're about. Hey, get used to it. Because next week... Are we going to announce this here, Ken? Are we going to say this here now? Yes. Next week, we're going to have one Natalie Flores returning. She's coming back. Because we're talking about Palavin. We're talking about what is essentially paradise for Natalie. This is... This is <laughs> the best... It is, a, it is a planet full of Garrisai, if you will. And... We got to bring Natalie along. It's on fire. She, she'd be she'd be pretty mad if we did not bring her along for the trip. So we're going to make sure she's here. We'll be talking about Garrus. We'll be talking about Palavin. We'll be talking about damn James Vega and how he can swim his way back to Earth if he loves it so much. Don't give me a goddamn nickname. <laughs> but until then, for Ken, I'm Eric. Thank you so much for tuning in. We'll see you next time on Don't be Don't be a fool. Don't be a fool.